Hey man, John here. Look, I know you love my voice because you've been listening to it for so many years now, but I'm sure I've mentioned to you that I also do audiobooks and all sorts of fun little things. So, you know what, man? You can totally hire me. And it's easy enough to go to www.johnwatersvoiceover.com. That's johnwatersvoiceover.com to hire me, check out podcasts, and even, if you're not convinced, I'm going to give you free stuff. I got promo codes for all kinds of books to suit your fancy and try my voice out. But also, if you've tried out my voice, you've heard it, you love it, and you're like, I want to support this guy some more. Well, man, I got something for you. I got a store right there on that same site, johnwatersvoiceover.com forward slash store. And man, oh man, we got shirts, hats, we got mugs, we got stuff that you cannot live without, especially if you're a fan of me. So come on and check it out, man. johnwatersvoiceover.com. You'll get great oral and then some. Welcome, welcome, welcome to another wonderful episode of The Gospel According to Stupid. I'm Johnny Waters, and this is my podcast where I read the Bible from cover to cover um, because I just want to understand. <laughs> I don't know. Um, you can reach out to us at accordingtostupid at gmail.com, at accordtostupid on Twitter, and you can find us on our website, www.johnwatersvoiceover.com forward slash podcasts, where you can find us, uh, hire me for my other voice work, as well as probably pick up a kick-ass t-shirt or something. How cool is that? Um, so today, we are going through Isaiah, and I got four websites and that uh, should um, cast some light on what uh, we just, I just read, you guys just listened to. So we'll see. We'll see how well it goes. Uh, so I have BibleHub.com. I've got the insight.org as usual. I've got Schmoop, which is exciting because it's real simplistic. And then finally, the longest one is Cliff Notes. So um, I think we're going to get started with, you know, kind of the the Bible Hub one, and then we'll move on to the Insight one. Um, so let's see how it, you know, does it does it keep up with me, you know, cursing God pretty much the entire way through? Let's find out. The book of Isaiah is narrative history, prophetic oracle, and even a parable, chapter 5. The prophet Isaiah wrote it at approximately 700 B.C., chapters 40 to 66, written later in his life, approximately 681 B.C. Isaiah is the first book in the section called Major Prophets. Okay. They are called Major Prophets because of the large amount of material they wrote, not because their message was more important than any other prophet's was. Oh, so these fuckers are just long-winded. Key personalities are Isaiah, his two sons, Shir Jashub, and Maher Shalal Jashbaz. Okay. Isaiah contains some of the most incredible prophecies of any book. It contains foreknowledge uh, in incredible details about the Messiah and the future reign of Jesus Christ. Um, I guess. I, I do recall there being like, you know, he's going to fucking die. Um sort of deal, but mm. the purpose of the book uh, of Isaiah was to call God's nation, the nation of Judah, back to faithfulness and to declare the coming Messiah, Emmanuel. 
God calls and commissions his prophet to declare to Judah and Israel condemnation, conviction, and ultimately great hope. In chapters 1 through 39, which is over half of the damn thing, Isaiah points out the sins of both north and south kingdoms. Yeah, then he declares severe punishment to them and all the neighboring nations around them. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from my sight, cease to do evil, 1.16. He proclaims great hope of the coming Savior. Savior. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel, 7.14. Okay. Because I remember doing that, being like, how far into the prophecy is this? And especially if he wrote it at 700 BC, you know, he's got a long fucking time to wait. This passage was fulfilled in Matthew 1, to 24 in the New Testament. Chapters 40 to 55 speak of the return and restoration after the exile from Babylon. Isaiah repeatedly claims the premise, there is no God beside me, 44, 6, 8, 45, 5, 6, 14, 18, 21. There is also another foretelling of the Messiah who will come and bring new life through his death. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth, like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. So he did not open his mouth. Well, eventually he did, didn't he? Yeah, the big father, they know not what they do. You know, so, but I mean, for most of it, I don't think he was, you know. Eh. Uh, in chapters 56 to 66, Isaiah writes of the new heavens and earth, that uh, this is that great reward for all those who trust and obey God. He proclaims the hope for the afflicted and judgment for the evil. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. Which seems really fucking dumb to me, but all right. 65:17. So that was uh, Bible Hub. So that one's real short. Um... So now we're moving on to this Pastor Chuck Swindle person um, because he keeps on popping up. And I, you know, I really don't care. <laughs> I'm getting it from multiple sources. So we'll see how this goes. Uh, so he starts it off again with who wrote the damn book. So as in the case of nearly all the books of the prophets, the book of Isaiah takes its name from its writer. Isaiah was married to a prophetess who bore him at least two sons, Isaiah 7.3 and 8.3. He prophesied under the reign of four Judean kings, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, 1-1, and he likely met his death under a fifth, the evil king, Manasseh. Uh, Christian tradition as early as the second century identifies Isaiah as one of the prophets whose death is described in Hebrews 11.37. Oh. Well, spoiler alert, specifically the prophet who was sawn in two. Oh, neato. Isaiah likely lived in Jerusalem given the book's concern with the city, Isaiah 1.1, and his close proximity to at least two significant kings during the period of his prophecy, 7.3.38.1. Um, out of curiosity, because we're going in Jeremiah next, uh, where the fuck is Hebrews? <laughs> is that what, am I right? Because I got, uh, got Hosea, I got Habakkuk, where the fuck is... Is it before? Did we read Hebrew before? Or am I forgetting this? Hebrews 11.37. Um, I'm not seeing it. I see... I don't know. Uh, it doesn't seem to be in the Old Testament. Acts, Romans, Ephesians... Ephesians 
Philippians. Oh, Hebrews. Oh, sorry. It's way the fuck into. Um, it's like two thirds of the way through the old New Testament. So we got a long way to go before like they get into that shit. Um, such of scholarship and of the past two centuries was assigned multiple writers to Isaiah, dividing the book into three sections, 1 to 39, 40 to 55, and 56 to 66. However, these divisions come out of a scholarly denial of predictive prophecy. Well, duh. This position not only limits the power of God to communicate with his people, but also ignores the wide variety of specific predictive claims about Jesus Christ scattered throughout the book. Well, eh, I mean, it is breadcrumbed, I guess, but eh, it, I kind of want to look at it from a literary standpoint. But this is not the point of this guy's thing. This one's exactly for like if some pastor, priest, whatever is going to be talking to you. Um, so, of course, he's going to be against the literary look at being like, well, you know. This is kind of how we want to break this up. Where are we? Is the next section. Isaiah prophesied from 739 to 681 BC to a nation that had turned a deaf ear to the Lord. Instead of serving him with humility and offering love to their neighbors, the nation of Judah offered meaningless sacrifices in God's temple at Jerusalem and committed injustices throughout the nation. Okay, well, I do remember that of like, I don't want your fucking sacrifices. It didn't really seem like it was like, lackluster. It was just, I mean, I understand like if you're just going through the motions, this isn't the thing. The people of Judah turned their backs on God and alienated themselves from him who created the need for Isaiah's pronouncements of judgment. Declarations made in hope that God's chosen people would return to him. That's the hope. But then again, you know, he kept on prophesizing, you know, death and destruction and shit. Why is Isaiah so important? The book of Isaiah provides us with the most comprehensive prophetic picture of Jesus Christ in the entire Old Testament. It includes the full scope of his life, the announcement of his coming, Isaiah 40, 30, uh, 40 3 to 5, his virgin birth, 7 to 14, his proclamation of the good news, 61, 1, his sacrificial death, 52, 13, 253, 12, and his return to claim his own, 60 to uh, 60. 2 to 3 because of these the numerous other Christolog christological christological texts in Isaiah the book stands as a testament of hope in the Lord one who saves his people from themselves yeah, uh -huh, okay What's the big idea? Isaiah's overall theme receives its clearest statement in chapter 12 Behold God is my salvation I will trust and not be afraid Isaiah 12:2 this echoes the meaning of Isaiah's name, which means the salvation of Yahweh. Eh, does it? Having read the book, one might wonder about the strong presence of judgment that runs through the first 39 chapters. Then the theme is salvation. Yeah, I was wondering about that. It was kind of the, you know, theme that I was very much picking up on. Uh, how can the two coexist? Well, there's multiple chapters. Uh, the presence of judgment indicates its necessary uh, necessity for salvation to occur. Before we can have salvation, we must have a need for it. Well, that's fucking stupid. For the bulk of those early chapters in Isaiah detailed judgments against the people who have turned their backs on the Lord, showing us that those who persist, persist in their rebellion will receive judgment, I guess. On the other hand, we also see God's faithfulness to his promise. Do we? Do we really? Uh, we will. He will preserve a small remnant of his faithful believers. Uh-huh. Are they all just the priests? Those who will continue on into the glorious renewed world. He has prepared for his children in the end times. 65.17 to 66.24 Alright, how do we apply this, I guess? 
Because of its scope, Isaiah contains one of the clearest expressions of the gospel in all the Old Testament, I guess. Even from the first chapter, it is clear that the people have turned away from God and failed in their responsibilities as his children. Eh, it didn't seem like it. They were doing this, you know, the sacrifices and shit. Uh, Isaiah 1 to 2, Isaiah 1, 2 to 17. Yet God miraculously holds out hope to his unrepentant people. Does he? Offering cleansing of sins and the blessing that comes with faith and obedience in him. Of the small people that come, like, back to him. So, yeah. And even those, it doesn't seem like, if y'all come back, I'm still going to take a small people. Like, it's not going to be all of you. <laughs> so, I mean, your odds go way down, <laughs> I guess. Uh, so it's better to be like, no, no, God doesn't talk to us. and Just stay in this tiny last tribe. You guys have fun in Babylon. Salvation lies only in God. Only. The only question is whether or not we will accept his offer. I don't know, because I think other people accepted the offer, and he's still probably not going to accept them back. In addition to its gospel message, the book of Isaiah clearly articulates the sins of God's people. Dealing with others unjustly, which resulted in their offering hypocritical sacrifices to God. Oh, well, whoops. Do you see anything in your own life that might fall under Isaiah's critique of injustice? Well, I've been lackluster in things, but meh. Treating family, colleagues, or even strangers with unkindness or even disdain. Well, they're new. Isaiah's message is also a call for believers to come back to purity and our love for God and for our neighbor. Luke 10, 26-28. There was that. All right, now hopefully a more of a fun explanation of this is Schmoop. Um, let's see. Uh, let's see. It says vegan cookie. Book of Isaiah summary. Vegan cookie. You can break Isaiah down into roughly three parts. The first, proto-Isaiah, prophesies death and destruction, but keeps lightening it up with cheery prophecies of a good and holy kingdom at the end of time. He always finds the sunny side. Sure, God might attack and annihilate people for wearing earrings or appoint children to rule as bad kings over Israel, but he always gets to a silver lining at some point. <laughs> I like this guy. Or whoever wrote this. Um, in the end, everyone, God included, is going to be so relaxed and peaceful that formerly carnivorous lions will be able to eat straw with oxen and peas. <coughs> Ugh. A vegetarian or vegan diet will be the rule in the animal kingdom. Alicia Silverstone's bringing the brownies, probably. Uh, we're not suggesting that the end of days stops with a fish and widespread panic jam, jam band festival, but... Uh, Maybe that's one metaphor you might want to try on. All right. License to ill. The second part of Isaiah, part of proto-Isaiah, and most of deutero-Isaiah, the latter of which includes chapters 40 to 55 or so, is much more revved up and eager to see some carnage. Nature after na nation after nation receives prophecies of gloom and doom. Assyria, Edom, Ephraim, Babylonia, Moab, you name it. It's getting the snack time cabbage patch kid treatment discontinued. What the fuck is that? Promulgating the ethos of Iron Maiden's Bring Your Daughter to the Slaughter. God hands, down, hands out beatdowns and dishes out vengeance to all nations, Israel and Judah included. It's not quite as graphic as some other parts in the Bible, but Isaiah, despite its peaceful rep, definitely portrays a god with a license to kill, and potentially a license to ill as well. The Big Chill Finally, the third part of Isaiah, Trito-Isaiah, 
or chapters 56 to 66, seems to be coming more from a future perspective. The slaughter is, or is almost, behind us. And now everyone is getting it together, waiting for the peaceful time that the earlier part of Isaiah had prophesied. God's not only going to be the big kahuna, but really the only kahuna on the block as far as anyone can tell. The blood and guts fest comes to an end and everyone will go to God's temple and God's holy people and pay homage and reverence to him, while the corpses of everyone who rebelled against God continue to rot ignominiously in the fields. Huh. Well, I mean, eh. Despite this gory little slideshow, the webcomic Woodstock on God's Holy Mountain is really still the main event. Well, okay, I'm going to click on that bad boy. Um, also, it would be important to mention that some of the messianic prophecies scattered throughout Isaiah, everyone argues about these, as covered in the later analysis section like symbolism, imagery, allegory. Is the suffering servant of Isaiah, particularly prominent in chapter 52, a personification of the righteous members of Israel? Is he Jesus of Nazareth? Is he a figment of a narrator's hopeful imagination? Is he a messiah yet to come? Obviously, we're not going to attempt to answer any of those questions. This is just the note that those prophecies are some big standout passages in Isaiah for everyone in addition to being the most fiercely debated. Oh, well, there you go. Oh. Hmm. I I guess. <laughs> um, anyway, moving on to the Old Testament of the Bible from... Uh, oh, wait a second. This is just the Old... Oh, here we go. Okay. Summary and analysis of Isaiah. So, summary again. This one's on Cliff Notes, and this is the last one that we'll, we'll do for this particular week. The book of Isaiah, as it now appears in our Old Testament, contains far more than can be attributed to the prophet. As a whole, the book is a rather large collection of writings that, are, that were produced by a number of different authors, some of whom were separated by relatively long periods of time. For example, Old Testament scholars have long recognized that chapters 1 to 39 constitute a unit that is quite separate and distinct from chapters 40 to 66. Generally, chapters 1 to 39 are attributed to the prophet Isaiah. These chapters deal primarily with Judah and Jerusalem at a time when the city was still standing and when the southern kingdom was threatened with invasion by the Assyrians. The group of chapters beginning with chapter 40 appears to have been written from the point of view of conditions that prevailed more than a century later. In fact, the writer indicates very clearly that the Babylonian captivity has existed for a long time. He believes that the punishment is nearly complete. The time is close at hand when the captives will return to their homeland and rebuild the city of Jerusalem, which has long been in ruins. Um, a careful reading of each of a careful reading of each of these two groups of chapters reveals that the prophet Isaiah did not write all of the first 39 chapters, nor did one person write all that is contained in chapters 40 to 66. Ample evidence indicates the work of several different authors. The editors who assembled the entire collection of manuscripts placed them all under the name of Isaiah because they were quite certain of those materials that belonged to him, and putting them all together indicated their location in the sacred writings rather than precisely precise authorship of each part. Makes sense, because we were like, this seems just a real hopscotch all the time. Isaiah was a prophet of the southern kingdom. Uh, his call to a prophetic life took place in the year of King Uzziah, 
that uh, the year that King Uzziah died, 740 BC, during a critical period in the history of the nation. Uzziah was one of Judah's greatest kings. He reigned for approximately half a century, and during this time, the kingdom enjoyed its greatest period of prosperity. Commercial relations were established with neighboring states, and the internal resources of the country were developed. However, this increase in wealth and the way in which it was distributed brought about some serious problems. The contrast between the rich and the poor reached an alarming state, which brought threats of a revolt from those who were deprived of their lands and other possessions. Then, too, there was an added threat from without, for the advance of the Assyrians against northern Israel was an indication that the time was not far distant when Judah might expect an invasion by the Assyrians. The situation was indeed ominous, but because Uzziah was a strong and able ruler, the people had confidence that he would know how to deal with these problems. Then came the startling news that the king had leprosy and would have to leave Jerusalem and live in a leper colony outside the city. Seems over the top, but all right. Uzziah's son Jotham, heir to the throne, possessed none of the strong and admirable qualities characteristic of his father. Instead, he was weak and vacillating, uh, a weak and vacillating person, quite unable to inspire confidence on the part of his subjects. Uzziah lived for three years in the leper colony. The news of his death brought shock and consternation to the entire kingdom. Gee, he had leprosy. During this time and under these crucial circumstances, Isaiah became a prophet. The vision that he interpreted as his call to service is recorded in chapter 6 of the book of Isaiah. The scene in which the vision occurred is the temple in the city of Jerusalem. Here the religious life of the nation was centered, and to this place Isaiah, a young man probably in his early twenties, turned in an hour when the future of his country looked especially bleak. The vision is described in considerable detail. Its essential meaning is expressed in the prophet's deep conviction that despite Judah's dark hour, Yahweh still controls the nations. His glory and majesty fill the whole earth. The contrast between Yahweh's holiness and the sinful state into which the Judean kingdom has fallen is something that calls for immediate action, someone who must speak for Yahweh and communicate the divine message to the people, assuming he's getting said divine message. Knowing what a difficult task this would be, Isaiah pleads that he is quite unfit to perform it. Yeah, good for him. Then an act take place that symbol takes place that symbolizes an inner cleansing of his heart and mind. I don't remember that. After which he responds to the call of the words, Here am I, send me. I don't get it. I don't remember that part. Isaiah's ministry lasted approximately half a century, con uh, continuing through the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Tradition tells us that he suffered a martyr's death during the reign of King Manasseh. Manasseh. His work brought him into direct contact with kings and priests, and he encountered strong opposition from both groups. At times this opposition was so strong that he was forced to give up speaking in public and confine his ministry to a group of disciples with whom he met privately. Hmm, seems familiar, right? With regard to the priests and the services that they performed, Isaiah expressed convictions that were similar to those spoken to the people of Israel by Amos and Hosea. For example, speaking for Yahweh, he says, The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me? Says the Lord. And again, the new moon festivals and your appointed feasts my soul hates. He even insists that Yahweh will not listen to the multitude's prayers. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Uh, from you. Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. I do remember that one. And being like, well, see ya. <laughs> like, 
In the same spirit, Isaiah criticizes the economic policies that were not sanctioned but encouraged by the rulers of the land. In the Song of the Vineyard, which is probably chanted by the prophet, we find the words, Woe to you who add house to house and join field to field, to no place is left and you live alone in the land. This chant protests the way in which the poor people were deprived of their property in order to satisfy the claims of their creditors, who had taken unfair advantages of these people's unfortunate circumstances in order to enrich themselves. The prophet's criticism of kings was expressed on many occasions, but never was it more pronounced than when he protested against the foreign alliances that were being negotiated. Early in Isaiah's ministry, he warned King Ahaz against the dangers involved in an alliance with Assyria. The heads of two puppet kingdoms that were all that remained of northern Israel asked King Ahaz to join with them in a coalition against Assyria. When Ahaz refused, they threatened to make war against him. I kind of remember this. Ahaz was frightened and wanted to appeal to Assyria for help. Isaiah clearly saw the folly that would be involved in a move of this kind, and in a prophecy that has often been misinterpreted as a reference to a coming Messiah, he warned King Ahaz that within three or four years those two puppet kingdoms that he feared would be completely routed. On the other hand, if Ahaz wanted to protect Judah, he should have given he should give his attention to those conditions that need uh, needed moral reform. Moral reform. King Ahaz did not heed Isaiah's advice. He went ahead with his plans, and as a result, Judah was placed in a subservient relation to the Assyrian Empire. Well, I mean, it might have worked out the other way, too. Like, who's to say? During the reign of King Hezekiah, on two different occasions, an attempt was made to curb the rising power of the Assyrians by forming alliances that would resist any further Assyrian aggression. The first of these was promoted by the Egyptians, who invited the Judean king to join with them. The second one was initiated by Merodach, Merodach Baladan of Babylon, who visited King Hezekiah and tried to persuade him to have Judah join with the Babylonians and the Egyptians in a united front against Assyria. King Hezekiah, fearful that Judah would be unable to stand alone, was inclined to join the alliance, but Isaiah knew that it would be a grave mistake for the king to do so. How? In one of the strongest messages that he delivered to the king, the prophet declared, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, who rely on horses, who trust in the multitude of their chariots. But the Egyptians are men and not God, their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hand, he who helps will stumble, he who is helped will fall, both will perish together. So, like, nah, that's a stupid reading. I understand being like, don't put your faith in men, put your faith in me, I'm God, motherfucker. Um, but it seems like no one gets help in this, at all, no matter which way you go. Despite the immediate dangers of the nation of, uh, the nation of Judah faced, Isaiah was confident of the ultimate triumph of the Hebrew people. Well, I certainly hope so. Like Hosea, spoilers, who uh, had looked on the approaching captivity of northern Israel as merely a prelude to a reformed and triumphant Hebrew society, Isaiah was sure that any temporary disaster would not be the final end of the Judean kingdom. Yahweh's purpose in the world was to be realized through the Hebrew people, which meant that the city of Jerusalem and that for which it stood could never be overthrown completely. When the Assyrians did invade Judah, capturing many cities and demanding that Hezekiah surrender the city of Jerusalem, Isaiah advised the king not to yield to their demands. He insisted that Jerusalem was Zion's city and would never fall. 
Within a short time, the Assyrian army withdrew, and for a brief period, Isaiah was vindicated. Closely related to Isaiah's teaching concerning the surviving remnant that would be the hope of Judah were his predictions with reference to the coming of a Messiah, or Anointed One, who will someday occupy the throne in Jerusalem and rule the nation with justice and righteousness. He will be far better... He will be a far better king than any of those who have preceded him. Under his leadership, the poor and the oppressed will find a champion, for he will judge their cases with a discerning mind and will not be unduly influenced by hearsay or mere outward appearances. His kingdom will be the fulfillment and realization of the divine purpose in the world. Neat. Analysis. Isaiah, Israel's Messianic Hope though implicit in the teachings of some of the earlier prophets, finds its first clear expression in the prophecies of Isaiah. The term Messiah means anointed one or one who has been chosen by Yahweh for the accomplishment of a specific purpose. Hebrew kings and priests, as well as prophets, were usually anointed in a special ceremony that symbolized their dedication to the work for which they were called. When Saul was chosen as the first king of Israel, he was anointed by Samuel and the ceremony symbolizes people's hope that the nation under Saul's leadership would realize its chosen destiny. But Saul did not measure up to these expectations, and the same was true of all the kings that followed in the line of succession of King David. The man who succeeded King Uzziah was notoriously weak and incompetent, and it was during his reign that Isaiah centered his attention on the coming of a Messiah, who would possess the good qualities that were so lacking in the kings. In one prophecy, the, uh, the Messiah is portrayed as an ideal king. In another one, he is characterized as an ideal judge who will understand the problems of the poor and the oppressed. He will ensure that their rights are protected and that they are given their just dues. During the centuries that followed the career of Isaiah, the concept of a coming Messiah took on a number of different meanings and became one of the most important ideas of Judaism. One of the best-known passages in the book of Isaiah is recorded in chapter 2 and deals with the subject of the coming of a warless world. Looking into the distant future, the writer envisions a time when the nations will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations will not take up swords against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. This prophecy, like the one recorded in chapter 11, in which the wolf will live with the lamb, and they will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. Well, that's specifically on the mountain. Seems to be an admirable supplement to the idea of a coming Messiah, who will be known, who will be known as Prince of Peace. Although these passages have often been attributed to Isaiah, the evidence indicates very strongly that these prophecies come from a later period. The same is true of several of the oracles concerning foreign nations, especially the ones having to do with the destruction of Babylon and the future genera uh, regeneration of the Assyrian nation. Now, these oracles uh, were finally included in the collection of Isaiah's own work indicates the high esteem with which they were regarded. <sighs> well, kids, that, that was Isaiah. That was the review. Uh, I hope you enjoyed. We will start with Jeremiah. Uh, and assumingly his bullfrog here uh, come Monday, and we'll see what uh, what he brings to the fucking table. That's super exciting. Please leave a uh, five-star review if and you can. Tell your friends, enemies, whatever. And you have been gospel to by the stupid.